Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 371, and I had a conversation with U.S. Army General Gary Mike Jones. General Mike Jones is a military legend. Some of his career milestones include Commander 3rd Special Forces Group Airborne, Deputy Commanding General United States Army Special Operations Command, Deputy Director Central Intelligence Agency Counterterrorism Center, Deputy Commander Combined Joint Task Force Mountain during Operation Enduring Freedom Afghanistan, Commanding General Special Operations Europe, and Commanding General U.S. Army Special Forces Command. And the list goes on and on. That's just the tip of the iceberg. He was very generous with his time, and we had such an interesting conversation. I really appreciated everything he had to say. Obviously, there are a lot of things that are secret, top secret, he can't talk about. But he was really great about answering so much of of the questions I had. I want to say a special thank you again for seven years of Hey Human podcast. Last week was my anniversary special, and my friend Trevor interviewed me for that for you all. And I really appreciate all the listens and the shares and all the good thoughts and good words. And, and thank you so much for that. And I hope you enjoyed that table-turning episode where I get interviewed. I had a blast. I wanted to bring up a show I watched this week that I loved called Jury Duty. It's on Amazon. It's hilarious. It's about this regular guy. Just It's a very Truman show. So this guy answered an ad, and he thought he was doing Jury Duty. And this is not a spoiler. This is the premise of the show. And everyone around him is an actor, but he doesn't know it. And they go through the whole trial. And at the end, you know, they let him know. But, whoa, it was so extraordinary to see this guy reacting to scenarios. He doesn't know that it's fake. It was so well done. It's very beautiful. It was funny. There's so much kindness. It was, it was really lovely to watch. And two books I just finished. The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. I love Neil Gaiman. I've never read this book. It's so good. I loved it. And the other is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. It's beautiful. I highly, highly, highly recommend that book as well. Check out Hey Human Podcast for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out SusanRuth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums, all my music on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, wherever you get your music. Look for my album, All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. Look for my album, How to Say Goodbye, Surfacing to Breathe. There's a few out there. Also, check out my relationships and sex show with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman on YouTube under Are We There Yet? podcast show. We're going to slow down for the summer, and they'll be coming out only once a month through the summer. But there's, I think, gosh, I think there's over 30 episodes maybe on there already. Lots of fun. Please rate, review, subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening. Be well, be safe, take care of each other, be love. And here we go. General Gary Mike Jones, welcome to Hey Human. Hey, that's great to be here with you. And you you prefer Mike? Mike is my preferred name, correct. Okay. Well, Mike, it's a pleasure to have you here. Pleasure to be here. And you are a retired general in the Army? That's correct. 
uh, yeah. retired from the army in uh, 2006. Yeah. Long service. 28 years. Uh, you know, it it, uh, it went faster than I thought it would. But you kind of come to a point in, I guess, your career when you know it's the right time for you to stay or leave. Once you recognize that, you move on. And really, for me, it was more about family than it was anything else. I always wondered that about the military. I know that it's in blocks, right? When you sign up, you have a particular number of years that you serve. But then once you get past that, are you, you're allowed to just sort of stick around as long as you want? Or how does that work? We have two. You have commissioned officers and you have non-commissioned officers, what we call the NCO and the officer corps. Mostly the officers, uh, once they come in the Army, they're, they're in until either they are promoted out. And when I say promoted out, their service to the, I guess, the nation or to the army is no longer needed. And they decide it's time for them to go home and do something else. Uh, their performance might have been great, but uh, there's no other job that they really have that they can do based upon their rank. Some officers don't do as well. And, you know, their performance doesn't make them competitive for the next level. So they make a decision that it's not, you know, in their best interest to stay around. So, you know, most officers stay in, I would hope, at least 20 years, but they lot stay longer. Uh, some don't stay more than 10 years, but uh, it's just a matter of personal choice, really. I guess that's the great thing about a volunteer army. Let's go back to the beginning of you. Where are you from originally? Where'd you grow up? I'm from Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, that's where I grew up. After high school, I uh, accepted a uh, football scholarship at Louisiana State University and then went to Louisiana State University and then spent four years there, graduated from there, and then entered the Army on the 5th of August, 1977. Was your family a military family? No, no one at all was in the military. You know, I really never had an intention of going in the Army when I went to the military. I mean, when I went to uh, college, football was really my life. I loved football. It was what I liked to do. I was very competitive as a football player and, and did well, but I had a serious injury my second year there, uh, dislocated my knee and uh, severed the popliteal artery in the knee, which almost caused me to lose the leg. So went through a uh, rehabilitation process that was pretty extensive, but continued to stay in play for the remaining years that I was there. However, my first year there, Vietnam draft was still on and uh, my coach, when I came up to me one day and said, come here, son. And there was a newspaper article that had all the draft notices on it, the numbers. And he looked at it and he pointed and he says, that's your draft number right there. If you're in the ROTC program, you're not going to be drafted and you can stay and play football. But if you don't join the ROTC program, you can be drafted. He says, now it's your personal choice. You do what you want to do. I said, well, gee, coach, that's uh, Louisiana math. I think I can figure that one out. So I immediately went to the ROTC department and signed up. Now, I had no intention of staying there for four years and then taking a commission in the Army. I was doing it because the coach said, if you want to play football, young man, uh, this is what you need to do. So I followed my coach's instruction, but I grew to where I really liked the program and I liked the people in it. Uh, the first Green Beret that I ever really met and a one-on-one -on -one engagement was a uh, ROTC instructor named Art Ziski, Major Art Ziski. Well, Captain Art Ziski at that time had just come out of Vietnam. And then there was a Special Forces Sergeant Major named Ray Stipsky. And both of those two were kind of my mentors while I was at the program at LSU. 
They're the ones that helped guide me. And probably one of the reasons I joined Special Forces was because of those two guys. But anyway, that, that's kind of how it got started. Was it as a young man looking at the future, being in ROTC, which for those that don't understand, uh, that's a, that's the officer training program. Uh, training Corps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So knowing that the Vietnam War was going on and what the potentiality of that for you meant, was there fear around that at all? Or was it simply, I'm going to play football. That's that. I probably won't ever see a battlefield. Well, you know, I had no intention of staying in the ROTC program. I mean, honestly, I thought, well, when the Vietnam War is over with, I'll get out of ROTC and I don't have to worry about that anymore. But um, I hurt my knee and I started to reconsider what my options were going to be. And I said, well, you're probably not going to play pro football after this because you're not going to have the same speed you had, uh, same agility. But the ROTC program looks good. And I remember Art Ziski, Major Ziski, telling me one day, he said, you know, Mike, one of the things you really need to think about is your retirement that the military will provide for you and the medical care that they will provide for you after you leave the service. And if you want to continue your education, there are programs in the Army that will allow you to continue your education. And to me, that was very, very attractive. That wasn't the prime reason I did it, but it was a a huge part of why I continued to stay in that program. There was also the one convenient piece that when you were a junior, you became an advanced student in the ROTC program, and they paid you $100 a month. So for me as a young student, that was wonderful. However, you know, the commitment is after that, when you graduate, you have to decide to take a regular Army commission or a reserve commission. And the regular Army commissions were hard to get. Most of the guys out of West Point got the regular Army commissions. And then if you did well in your ROTC program and were a distinguished military graduate, you would be offered a regular Army commission. And I was fortunate enough to be a, a DMG, distinguished military graduate, and received a regular army commission. So I took it. Do you have recollections of, especially during the Vietnam era, recollections of people around you, friends, even family that were thinking, what are you doing? Because I remember reading about the sentiments against oh, yeah. the military at the time. Of, a lot of protests on campus. Uh, there were specific segments that tried to recruit us, you know, to not stay in ROTC, but be part of the anti-war movement. And then, you know, of course, we had, we were young, young men, young kids. You had your other friends that would make fun of you because you wear a uniform. And, you know, I had a good friend who was, who was my lifelong friend. And we, we still uh, correspond and talk just about once a month is Dr. Mike Leonard. We both played high school football together and then went to college together and played. And he was, he was a little bit of a rabble rouser, but he would hide outside of the bushes in the morning early when I had to go to the ROTC department, I had to wear my uniform. He'd jump out of the bushes and salute me and, you know, just give me a, a little bit of, you know, uh, I guess you would say poking at or or cajoling. It was all in good fun. And we loved each other very much, so it really didn't matter. But it's, it's always remember that. But he wasn't one of those that uh, was anti-Army. It's just it was a, it was a way that friends could kind of pick at each other. So anyway, that was that was the only time, only only thing I ever remember. I think people can be anti-war and pro-military at the same time. 
Yeah. Well, I think, you know, some people look at the people and not necessarily the organization, and they're able to separate the organization from the people. Once they know the people, they recognize who they are, what their heart's about, what their mind's about, what they believe or don't believe in. And it's easier for them to warm up to you. And we had a lot of cases like that. I mean, this one guy that continued to try to recruit me. Uh, of course, I didn't agree with him. He didn't agree with me. But we'd sit down and have coffee. We became, I guess you would say, cordial friends. I respected him for his position on the, on the, on the war. And he respected me on my position to serve the nation. Wasn't necessarily about going to Vietnam, but about serving the nation. What does that mean to you? Serving the nation means everything. I think it's what gives us our national identity as a nation. You know, if you're willing to serve the nation, you're serving something greater than yourself, which is extremely important. It's a concept that I wish we could really get back to with some of our youth. Uh, I believe that it would also be something I think would help us as a nation in making decisions. And the reason I say that is, is that our congressmen and senators, their children don't all serve. Therefore, it's easy for them to make decisions about sending young men to war if it doesn't affect them directly. Now, as a politician, of course, they'll always say, oh, yes, it affects us directly. We care about all constituents. But I think it, it hits home a little bit more when their son or daughter could be uh, placed in the same position of other young men and women in the nation that have elected to serve. So when all are part of this decision, I think it creates a unity within the nation that's a little bit different from what we have right now. When you look at the service, what you find is probably less than 1% of the population is in the military. And through time, you can create this unique culture that doesn't necessarily fit in to the nation probably the way it should. And the reason I say that is, is what you will find is military families will start having children and their children serving in the, in the military. And it becomes so myopic that you don't have that exposure and connection to your American culture and all of those people who don't serve. So, you know, you're in the army thinking you're doing something very noble for the nation, but you can also adopt this view that we are special and we're the only ones that are given to the nation like we should, which is not necessarily the truth. So, you know, there's a little bit on both sides there as to why it's important to serve the nation at large. Now, I don't care who, what it is you serve, whether it's Peace Corps, the State Department, medical outreach programs, but something from a national perspective that is sponsored by the nation to help others or to serve someone other than yourself. That's why I think national service and this issue is extremely important. Do you think we should reinstitute, not necessarily the draft itself, but an idea of that where I, I personally feel like if Americans had a, a set number of couple years when they hit 18 that where they do serve their community or the nation in some capacity we would see a stronger more fortified humanity within each other because it, it would put people in positions as you pointed out they've never seen habitat for humanity people will see oh there's people that don't even have homesteads there are you know a soup kitchen that's service 
things but the, like the idea has to be something that's greater than oneself it has to be to serve others i mean that's the problem you know we're, we're all serving ourselves and you really have to create this heart of serving others i mean i think that every 18 year old in the united states should serve his nation for a minimum of two years i don't care what field it's in if it's if it's working as an emt if it's working as a police officer if it's working for the peace corps if it's working for habitat for humanity whatever there might be our military and you have to make a choice but you're going to do it and because of that we put people together that normally would not even talk and they're forced as a team and an organization to do something together to achieve an outcome that is greater than oneself so that that's very important now I, for me you know that came through sports i mean you know sports made us no matter where we came from no matter what color creed what community it didn't really matter when you went out on that football field, you all had to pull together to win. And it made you recognize that all men, as we stay in our constitution, are created equal, endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. And because of that, you can really understand it, even in the, you know, a concept of a sport. But I think we also need to do that for those who don't experience that through some type of national service. I mean, we've got a great nation. We've got great people. The challenge I think we have today is we've created these chasms, you know, between ideologies where we just don't talk anymore and we have no position of compromise. And we should always have some form of compromise that allows us to achieve something that helps all achieve what is necessary in the best interest of the nation. Yeah, it's hard not to see where we are now and think that there wasn't sort of a hand guiding that 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 schism in some way or another, but that, I know that's conspiracy theory, but it's also, it seems like what a, what better way to bring down a nation than to make it eat itself. Well, I mean, you know, many historians and many uh, ideologues throughout history have basically stated that that is, uh, that's the one thing that will destroy America. I mean, Stalin said, you know, it's not about us defeating the United States with a force of arms, they will destroy themselves at their own will. And, you know, it's, there's a lot to that. But I think it all goes back to this issue of understanding that it's not about you. It's about a nation. It's about a, it's about a national goal. It's about achieving what's in the best interest of all citizens and doing that without you being first. And if you can put yourself in that position and do that, I think the rewards are greater in life than you could ever imagine. I mean, you'll meet people you never knew. I mean, people that you would never even consider to be your friends. They'll be your lifelong friends because of those types of experience where sometimes it's arduous. Sometimes it's challenging. A lot of times it's uncomfortable. But through that comes great growth in the humans. We have reached a very interesting point in society where folks curiosity seem to be at an all-time low and also critical thinking and also as you said the idea of, of getting out and meeting people different than oneself the tribalism is at an all-time high yeah well, i couldn't agree with you more i mean I, I really believe that 
But I do believe a lot of it is because of uh, technology. You know, now we have more information available to us than we've ever had in our lives that are on the tips of our fingers. But the challenge is, in many ways, is if you're not a critical thinker, you know, you take that information based upon its its face value and you run with it, where really what you should be doing is examining many different forms of the information that you're looking at to verify for yourself or whomever other you might purport this position to be that it is accurate. Okay. And if it's not accurate, then you need to, you need to accept that. However, you know, we find people that no longer, I think, uh, focus on the value of what I consider truth, which is truth and information and are more inclined to accept ideologies and, and, and trade truth for ideology uh, versus, you know, accept the ideology just for what it is. Now, it's my understanding that the military is supposed to be apolitical. They're not supposed to get involved in politics in any way, shape, or form right. in order to be a perfect working entity in and of itself without any kind of influence by who, for example, is in the White House or in the Senate. Or And we are seeing this huge influence by politic and next to that the whispering of a religious impact mm -hmm. and how do you see that going moving forward obviously right now some of the military is being held a bit captive by some political doings how do we get away from that how do we fix that well first of all there was a marine corps general named krulak about maybe 30 years ago wrote an article about um, what happened to the Roman legions uh, during the Roman Empire. And it was about 48 BC when the Goths, the Bithagoths attacked Rome and defeated the Roman army. And he said it started many years before that with the politicization of the military. And it started with what was called the Praetorian Guard. Now, I don't know if you know what the Praetorian Guard was. A Praetorian Guard, uh, the movie Gladiator, you see these men who wear these purple uh togas and roman uniforms and they protect the caesar well, before that the roman legion every morning they would go through and inspect the roman legion the centurion who took care of a group of about 100 men he was like the non-commissioned officer and he would inspect them every morning and they had a blood breastplate called a cirrus and you could tell if the cirrus was being well maintained by the sound when you strike the cirrus so every morning they would go by and they would salute and say veritas and it really was referring to uh the unity of the unit as a whole and as if one of those breastplates was off the centurion would say well you're not taking care of your breastplate he'd be punished but the importance of that was that all of those cirruses needed to be maintained so they could maintain the the shield that was required when under attack and protect themselves so that if one guy fell, it would cause us weakness in the, in the unit. So they had to keep those things well-maintained. Well, that was because the focus was on the unit, the organization as a whole. It wasn't about the one individual. And later they started to take officers out of the uh, legion and they had them protect the Caesar. And the motto of the Praetorian Guard was Hail Caesar. So the focus went from 
a unit's wellness and wholeness to that of being allegiant to one individual, to one person, which started to change the way the Roman legion operated. And so as these officers did their tours or time with the Caesars and they went back into the legion, they were more focused on the politics of supporting the Caesar and not maintaining the wellness of the organization. And through time, they didn't train as well. They didn't practice as much. They didn't maintain their equipment as well. And it started to destroy the legion. They wouldn't give good, sound military advice to their leaders. They just started to rot from the inside because of this politicization. I believe that in many ways we need to look at our military today and, and ask ourselves, is this a challenge we have? This requirement for officers to be successful by going and serving in Washington, D.C. And it's necessary that we understand how Washington works uh, because you can't compete as a large service like the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, unless you understand the budget cycles and how to get money and how to maintain that money to, to uh, do research and development and product and procurement and create things that protect your soldiers or your Navy or your Air Force and make us a lethal fighting force. I mean, there's one, there's one job that the DOD has, only one job. That's to fight and win the nation's wars, period. It's not about going and being a politician in Washington, D.C. And it's not about staying up there for four, five, ten years. It's about how do we ensure that our Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines are honed to the best skill possible to fight and win the nation's wars if called upon to do so. That's, that's what they exist for, nothing else. Now, you know, some of us would think that this diversity, inclusion, DEI, I believe was the term, diversity, equity, and inclusion was their focus. And a lot of that's been going on now, but that's not the focus. And when we lose sight of that focus, we kind of find ourselves in the same position of the Roman Legion when the Roman Legion fell. So we need to we need to pay attention to that. I mean, you know, these officers that serve in Washington, D.C., they should probably only be up there one or two years and get back out to these units so they're with these young soldiers every day to see what their challenges in life are and how to train them to do what it is they do. The closer they are to these soldiers every day, the more focused they are on ensuring that they're prepared to do their job. Because it's their responsibility to make sure that these young sons and daughters of America come home alive if called upon to do so. And that's 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 their number one, fight and win the war and make sure the sons and daughters of America come home alive. That's their job. How does one try to protect the military forces from being influenced, and I'm not talking about generals, maybe some generals, the, the quote, everyday boots on the ground type. What, if any, precautionary measures are made to make sure they aren't indoctrinated into seeing their service as not being of a nation, but maybe of little pockets of a nation? A leader's responsibility to ensure that he, he advises his soldiers on what's what their job is and what it is they're really there to do. I mean, you'll find it's interesting. I, I noticed this from my career to the career I've seen these young men, and I saw it creeping in as I, I got older. But 
I remember as a young man being a captain for like 13 years. You know, some of these guys are not captains for more than four years now, but it was 13 years. And I didn't know anything about being a captain, but I loved it. I thought it was the greatest job in the world. I mean, I just, I couldn't imagine being anything else. I was so happy doing what I was doing. I knew my skill well. I could train soldiers well. I mean, I could get out in the field because I was physically fit enough to do everything that needed to be done. And one day some guy called me and said, Hey, do you have one of those saucer caps with the scrambled eggs on top? I go, no, I don't even know what that is. He goes, well, you need to go get one because you're getting ready to get promoted to major. Now, today, a young kid understands how to track his career from the time he's a lieutenant to a first lieutenant to a captain to a major to a lieutenant. He knows all the jobs he needs to have. We didn't do that when I was in the Army. Our leaders decided who was going to get promoted based on the way you could perform the functions that they gave you to perform. And were you technically and tactically competent in doing what it is they asked you to do? And, you know, were you a team? You know, did you understand how to team build? Did you understand how to lead? Did you put yourself in adversity like the others did? Did you ensure that the things that you asked them to do, there was nothing that you wouldn't do that you were asking them to do? And oh, by the way, did you always lead from the front on those types of issues so that your soldiers saw it and they understood that you were in this with them together? Now, I never even thought about getting promoted. I mean, it just happened. And that happened for many, many years until I got older. And then people were kind of going, golly, you see all these young men, they're, you know, they're, they want to get counseled on how to make sure they understand how to get promoted to this level here instead of worrying about the job that they are in and doing the best that they could at that and ensuring they delivered the best service to their soldiers and where they were, they were extremely competent in what they were being required to do at their level. Don't worry about this guy above you and how you're going to do his job or the guy's next job. That's not your focus. Your focus is where you are right now. And I saw that changing a lot. I really did. And it's, it's difficult to protect, but good leaders will call their people in and talk to them every quarter, every month about their performance, what it is you like about what they do, what it is you don't like about what they do, and what they should do to improve to be a better soldier in their art. And if you're not doing that, then that's where you're letting the system down. I mean, I had a thing called pairwise comparison. But I had a file on every officer in my organization and every NCO. And every time I had a contact with them, I'd make a note about that contact. And every quarter, I would call them in, each one of them, and spend maybe an hour with them. And I'd go through everything that I had in there. Yeah, I ran into you the other day. You know, you hadn't shaved in the morning. You looked sloppy. You know, ran to you five days later, and you looked like you'd shaved 15 times. I mean, you know, things that not just highlighted those things they were doing negatively, but ensuring that they understood they made the corrections, you know, they were, they were, they were doing better. Their soldiers were looking better. I mean, those types of things, you see all of that and you run into, you know, ethical dilemmas and, and moral dilemmas with some people and many times and you have to ensure that they understand that those things are either right or wrong. So, you know, being a soldier is, uh, is something that you really have to consider the moral aspects of everything that you do. Because once you're out there on the battlefield, there's not a lot of people looking. And little organizations can go awry real quick based upon the conditions that they're in. I mean, I remember listening to a presentation from some, some NCOs 
after Afghanistan, we'd been there for at least, I'd say, one, two, three, four, about four years. And I would always go down and talk to them about their experience and see how they were doing and kind of give them a little head check. But we were talking about um, loyalty and integrity. And the dilemma that was posed was that you're in the field and you're fighting and you've lost three guys on your team that were killed. You were close friends with them. And all of a sudden you capture this guy that you know was responsible for their deaths. What do you do? Okay. Right. You know, treat him as a prisoner of war in accordance with the, the, the laws of land warfare. How are you going to treat him? You know, one guy goes, well, I'll tell you what. So we just take him out and deal with him. So what do you mean deal with him? He goes, well, we're just going to deal with him. You know, sir, we're all, we've all been through this. You know, we know what's going on out there. We don't take care of them. They're going to take care of us. I go, really? Is that, is that the way you look at it? And he goes, well, that's loyalty. We're going to be loyal to each other. I said, what if the criminal investigation command comes down after this is over with and asks you what happened? And, you know, one of you says, well, we, we shot him and killed him in cold blood. And the others are going, oh, we didn't do that. <laughs> no, that's impossible. We didn't do that. I said, well, this will all see the light of day. I said, so on your team, this concept of loyalty is, uh, a misgiving. I said, what you should be focused on is your integrity. And a rule you should always think about is, is when somebody's appealing to your loyalty, they're probably asking you to do something wrong. When they appeal to your integrity, they're asking you to do something right. And your integrity tells you that you know that this is not right and you can't do this. But if you step across that line and partake of this and are a part of it, you're a criminal like any other criminal, and no one can help you at that point. I said, so you need to remember this rule. If they're appealing to your loyalty, they're probably asking you to do something wrong. If they're appealing to your integrity, they're asking you to do something right. You know, you could have heard a pin drop in there, and all of a sudden this NCO came up to me afterwards. He goes, you're absolutely right, sir. We never stepped across the line on that, but we came close to it. And he says, I will ensure that I'll never let that happen. In my tour in the military, I said, well, that's, that's good on you, son. I said, because if you ever do that, you know, you, you're going to have to pay the price for it because you're a criminal if you do. And that's the one thing that separates us as the United States military in many places that we go. You know, we believe in the rules of the law of land warfare. And we believe it's important that you cannot step across the line and violate that. And there are others that do, other nations that do, the Russians, have, I'm sure, and this Ukrainian issue, and I'm sure some of the Ukrainians had too, but we can't let that happen. And I'm sure there were some conditions in Vietnam where that happened, and I heard stories about it. I wasn't there, so I don't know. But you know what? You're going to be there one day, and you'll have your opportunity to do the right thing. So the young men have to understand that, and I think that that's where leadership is important, making sure that they understand these ethical values and how they are important, and they cannot be violated. If you're in, if you're reinforcing these things with them all the time, that's the one way that you keep your force on the right azimuth. And that azimuth is a moral azimuth. So, you know, that's, that's kind of my look at it. It's also complicated because when situations do come to light, as they often do, uh, for example, like in Iraq, it then shines this negative light on the entirety of the forces. Because four or five people do heinous acts, then therefore all of the military operates 
like them. It's not like that, of course, but that's what people then extrapolate from what they're learning. They don't know any better. What would you expect them to know? To, sure. I mean, look, they're just, you know, they, they think, well, that's the military. Okay, yeah. that's, that's what they do. Oh, no, it's not. I mean, you know, a leader's responsibility is to ensure the moral azimuth is kept straight in everything that you do under all conditions. How do you prepare? I'm sure you've had to have these conversations as you've gone up through the ranks. How do you prepare someone to do the to do the duty of where they will likely be in a, a situation where they have to take another person's life, which of course goes against all the stuff they've been taught up until then. Well, every soldier has the right to self-defense on the battlefield. I mean, he understands what we call the rules of engagement. You know, if you're in a fire base and the enemy attacks the fire base, you have to defend yourself. So, you know, you either, you either fight or die. I mean, that's kind of the, that's kind of what happens. So you're placed in this position where you're going to have to respond whether you want to or not. But the other thing I guess that is very important is, is this thing about, you know, the, the uh, chemistry of organizations. You know, when you live together and you're in positions where you're going to die together, then it takes on a completely different dimension. You know, you will see people rise to the occasion that you would never expected. They will do heroic things that just astound people. And a lot of it's because of the, 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 the love that's been created. With these people, I don't know how to explain it any other way. But that, I mean, they just have grown to where they love each other. And family, because of, yeah, because of that love and that family, you know, they they defend each other. I mean, unto the death. And so that's kind of that's the way it happens. I mean, that's that's just the way it is. Now, nobody takes any great pride in any of that. I can tell you that right now. I don't think any of these kids really want to go to war. It's a romantic. A fantasy that some people have that's just misplaced. And anybody that's there who's ever seen it doesn't want anything to do with it. Again, I think it all starts with the soldier's training. What you teach them from day one about how to be a soldier and what's expected of them and how you expect them to be a part of the Army or the Navy, the Air Force, Marines. It applies to all. What are your thoughts around when folks go home when they've served their tours and their duties and they're left a being an adrenaline junkie in some cases <laughs> after everything they've experienced and b being separated from as you put it that that unit that bond that i don't think other people can quite grasp that's a whole other level of bonding when you're in a live or die situation and just all the things that happen when you take them out of that scenario and put them back into the quote unquote real world. What are your thoughts around that and, and the care for people? Because I know there's a lot of pre-care, getting them prepared to go into those situations, but then the deconstruction of it all after the fact. I think that, uh, well, first of all, I'd like to say that uh, the military has done a very good job over the last, I'd say, 20 years, I guess you would say constructing a system that is very supportive of the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, much more so than Vietnam or World War II or World War One. I. I mean, you know, if you historically go back and look at it, you can, you can almost really uh, correlate the uh, results that have occurred based upon the government's care 
for their soldiers when they come back from combat. You look at World War One, and the trauma was incredible in that war. But those kids that came back or the people that came back, a lot of them were the results of the Roaring Twenties. There were no jobs. Uh, they had skills that you know can't be applied anywhere else other than potentially in criminal enterprise. All right, pushed a lot of them into that where they could use those skills. And because of that, you had challenges. Uh, you had people that were homeless and, you know, just in bad conditions because they had no systems to help them. I think in World War II, they improved that somewhat. Vietnam wasn't as good. Korea wasn't as good. And I'm not really sure we understood what was going on with some of these soldiers. We didn't understand post-traumatic stress like we do or TBI like we do today. So I think our, our system is designed to better help the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines recover from these challenges that are faced from combat trauma. And everybody that has been in combat has some form of trauma. I don't care what they say, all right? Everybody's got some form of PTSD or some behavioral change to their normal activities uh, because of these events. And I think that we've helped our soldiers, at least from what I've seen, understand that it's not bad to understand that you have this type of trauma and to bring it to someone's attention to help you if you need to get through it. Uh, I think, though, there were some times when there was heavy medication being probably given to some of these kids that wasn't good. You know, a chemical solution was the problem. And then because of that, other programs were developed in the civil community, which helped them beyond a pharmaceutical solution, you know, whether they were horse ranches or, you know, recovery centers or things that helped them, you know, bridge this trauma they had and kind of get back to normalcy. But we're not, not, not that, not as successful as we would tout ourselves to be, although we had programs in place, we've had incredible amounts of suicides from soldiers i mean they were just I, I don't even think the public understands you know one time we were losing like 60 to 100 kids a day i mean from suicide and of course that's gone down significantly but still the point is is that these events are are traumatic and it's 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 hard to manage them all i think i mean it's difficult you know, again, this kind of goes back to when I look at these politicians that can easily decide we're going to go do these things. But the second, third, and fourth order effects that are after this, the cost of the war is not just the bullets and the beans, all right, and transportation of materials and recovery of materials. It's that third and fourth order effect that occurs years after veterans return and all of the things we have to do to take care of that. So, the costs are enormous. I just don't think that politicians really understand the true cost of the decisions that they make. I mean, if it was up to me, we wouldn't be fighting in any wars, okay? Some are, you have no choice. But in many cases, you know, we, we go just about everywhere to help everybody do everything. I think we need to pay attention to that. Yeah. What does it mean to be a general? What is the, what is the activities of a general entail? Well, first of all, I think we have too many generals. That's the first thing I'll tell you at large. And the reason I say that is, is I've seen the number of generals proliferated like nothing I've ever seen. 
And to me, it has an impact on decision-making at lower levels. Uh, lieutenant colonels and colonels, when I was growing up, captains, majors, lieutenant colonels made decisions that some of these generals are making today. But because of the risk quotient, these things get pushed up so that they don't have to make the decisions. And they know that these guys will have to make the decisions. And they're making the decisions, which are really decisions that could be made at these levels. So more generals, you have the, you know, your challenges to, to young leaders making risk decisions changes significantly. The quotient changes significantly. So being a general, being a general is like being a brand new private in the army at a different level. Yeah. I mean, when you become brigadier general, you, you know, the lowest general that there is. And of course, there's a lot of jobs for those good brigadiers <laughs> that the other guys don't want to do. So we end up doing a lot of the, a lot of the heavy lifting as brigadiers and major generals. The other guys, you know, one of the things that people don't understand is brigadiers and major generals. Major general is the last competitive rank in the army. Lieutenant general and general are positions that are nominated before Congress. So to receive those positions, your nomination has to make it through Congress before you can have the position. So they're not necessarily uh, positions that are decided upon by a board of officers like you do for a major general and a brigadier general. But that seems screwed up. That's just the whole point. It's like keeping politics out of the military, and yet that's the final level? Well, that's kind of the way it works now. I don't. I can't blame that completely on politicians because the military decides who those nominees are, and the Congress gets to decide whether or not they agree those guys are the right guys. Uh, I don't necessarily agree that Congress should do that, but that's that's the way the system's set up. I think if they leave it to the military, they'd make good decisions and they'd pick the right people to do the jobs that need to be done. I mean, they know the people better than the con congressmen do. But, you know, anybody today can make a complaint against somebody to Congress and his nomination get held up and doesn't get promoted. And, you know, he's done. He's done for his career. So it's, it's, it's kind of screwy, but it is the system that we live in. Mm. So what do you do as a retired person now? What is your, it's the thing that makes you happy and how, two uh, questions, <laughs> that and also how do you deal with the, everything that you've seen? over the course of your career? Uh, well, first of all, the thing that I enjoy doing the most is spending time with my wife and my grandkids. Uh, spending my time with my wife, who's my best friend, and uh, I love dearly. I'm, I'm just blessed beyond measure. I've just had a wonderful wife for the last 37 years that uh, helped me raise my kids, and I can think of nothing I'd rather do than spend time with her. So that's number one thing. Uh, my grandkids, which uh, I love to be around, they're great. Got three beautiful grandchildren. Just had one here yesterday that just came in from New Jersey and spent a couple of days with us. Uh, my other two grandchildren live here, and I see them. I see one of my grandkids every weekend, the other one about every other weekend. So we try to get together as much as possible. And then my dogs. Other than that, you know, if I can do my exercise and spend time with my wife, just enjoying life now, that's, that's all I care to do. How'd you meet your wife? Just happened to be one of those times, you know, when you you ask yourself the question, am I going to go out tonight or not? You know, and I just decided one night I was going to go out and I went to a restaurant and, uh, I, you know, I'm just telling it like it is. I walked through the door and I saw her and I said, wow, that's her right there. <laughs> so <laughs> that's where it happened. 
Oh, and we've wow. each other, and uh, we've been together ever since. What's the secret to a long marriage? Oh, well, you know, it's, it's work. I mean, marriage is work. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad work. I'm just saying that you have to work together to make a marriage successful. I think someone I heard this, someone say this a long time ago, you know, never go to bed without telling your wife you love her and resolve any issues that you might have before you go to bed. You know, it's kind of one of the things that's one of our rules. We're churchgoers, so, you know, we participate in church together since we've been married. Uh, she's a great singer and a great uh, pianist, and we've enjoyed, you know, our worship together and living our lives growing through that. Uh, God has played a significant part in our life. We're Christians, so that's one thing. Uh, we're tolerant of others, though, so we're not, we're not ones that condemn others for their beliefs. We just we believe that through our examples of life to others makes what we believe acceptable to them as we believe what they believe is acceptable to us and them. Anyway, so that's kind of one of the one of the things that's a prime motivator for us. And then we believe in giving to others. When I say that, I believe, you know, tithing is something that we do, but the tithing is focused for us and our family. 10% of our income goes towards tithing every month. And that's focused on helping those who need help. I mean, actually, I get more joy out of that than probably anything. Giving to me is is one of the aspects of life that's not appreciated as much as I think it should be. I get more out of giving than anything I could ever get. I'd rather not get anything and give and not get anything, period. I get more out of that than anything in life. It keeps you, it keeps the world's, it keeps you from centering too much on oneself, I think. It, yeah. When you see the world as, again it's a being of service when you're of service to the world you don't have as much time to focus on your own stuff keeps you out of your head but it helps you recognize how fortunate you are and you know how you should give to others because they're not as fortunate and because they're not as fortunate doesn't make them any uh, less of a human being it's just important for us to recognize it i think if we would give more and we would be more tolerant understanding of other people's dilemmas and, you know, show a little bit more compassion to them that we'd probably be better off as a nation, period. And, and to me, that comes through the, uh, for us, Christian principles. Christ consciousness, I like to call that. And you don't have to be a Christian to facilitate Christ consciousness. No, you don't. Yeah, no, it's, no. A, it's a way of being where your heart sees the world as worthy of love. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And to the other question, how have you, over the course of your life, dealt with all the things that you've seen? Because I know that you can't talk about stuff with me, certainly, because you've been on some pretty intense things that are none of anybody's business. <laughs> but that being said, how do you, how have you processed all of that as you've grown into yourself? Well, first of all, I'm not a complainer. That's rule number one. I don't complain about anything. I don't care how bad it is. I don't complain about it because there's always somebody that's all worse off than you are. That's that's number one. But I believe that, um, you know, anything that happens, no matter how bad it is, you can turn it into something good and gracious if you just try. You know, if your attitude is every morning when you get up in the morning, it's going to be the greatest day of, of your life. And whatever you do, anytime... I have a rule when I'm around people uh, and someone starts talking negatively to me about someone else or some condition, if I can't change the conversation in a minute to two minutes, I walk away from it. 
And the only reason I say that is, is I, I'm not a, I don't like to be around people that are negative energy. I just think it really brings people down. And I believe that no matter what happens to you in life, no matter how disadvantaged you might think you are or other people tell you you are, you're not. And if you allow that to take root in your soul, it's going to affect you for the rest of your life. So everything you're doing, if you will work hard at it and know that you are going to be successful, you are going to be successful. But if you embrace the negative energy of, 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 of victimhood or, or, you know, I'm, I should have this because this is where, who I am and what's happened to me. Listen, a lot of bad things happen to people in life. Again, it, it goes back to what do you do with it when it happens? Are you going to take it and turn it around? Are you, as uh, Denzel Washington says, you know, when you fall, fall forward. Don't fall backwards and get up and keep falling forward. And if you do that in life, you're going to be okay. And I believe that. So I don't, all these things that have happened, they happen to me or others tenfold to what I've experienced. So I'm not going to focus on that. What I'm going to focus on is how do I make things better for everybody else? I mean, if, if, if you can help someone somewhere every day in one way, shape, or form, you're going to make the world a better place. It's just that simple. And if you embrace anything else in that, other than that, it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> you're, you're lucky because I think a lot of people between depression or PTSD or whatever they're dealing with in their life, it's very hard to see past that. And it's my experience that people will cling to the past and the worst because they understand it. They know it. It's, it's weirdly comforting that even the worst thing can feel familiar and comforting more than the, the terror of moving forward and the good thing that might be coming because they don't, you know, if I don't know what that is, and even it's the best thing in the world, it's scary to take that first step toward that thing because all I've known is this other terrible thing. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I really feel for for people who are um, depressed or have uh, or commit suicide. You know, I remember, you know, theologically listening to the precepts of what uh, people believe in different sections of Christianity about suicide. It used to bother me when I, you know, if you if you commit suicide, you're going, your soul's going to hell. And I would hear that, and I'd say, "Wow, man, you know, I just, just, I don't, I don't get that. I mean, it just doesn't work for me." And so, my greatest compassion are for those that ha have gone through this and have died or haven't died and still have this depression, because to me, there's a there's a chemical imbalance somewhere in that body or in the mind that is putting them in a position to where they are where they are. I mean, like a like depression or, or suicide. You know, it takes a brave person to commit suicide. I can never do it. I'm too big of a chicken. Okay. I just couldn't do it. But when you recognize that and you see what they've done, you just go, my God. I mean, it had to be so bad that it put them in that position to do that. So to me, it's, it's a, it's a heartbreaking thing for me to, to see people who commit suicide and their families or those who are in deep depression because there's something physically wrong with them that's not corrected or that's gone wrong and you know the best thing to do at least for me when i come in contact with people like this is just try to low i mean just you know 
encourage them or do whatever you can to help them get through it. Now, I, I have no expertise in any of that. All I know is that the way I look at the way I do what I do and hope that it's successful and just staying focused on positive. I mean, I've had bad times too, like others have. And there's a lot of bad things that happened to me in my life, but I'm not looking back at that stuff. I'm just, I'm moving forward. And it, embracing that for me has been very helpful. And I can, there's not a thing I can't do. I really believe that. Yeah. It must be hard to be in a leadership position in a, in a thing like the military when, I mean, look, there are mistakes made in any career, in any place, by any person at any given time. That's just the facts. And I do think that the military, there's an expectation that somehow it has to be infallible, but that's just not realistic. And, no. and it falls upon the leadership, of course, to bear the brunt of that. Well, you know, that's, that, that's the, that's the part of leadership that's tough, but that's the part of leadership that you accept when you become a leader. Leadership, it's lonely at the top. Trust me. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you don't have anybody else to talk to, but you have to understand that, you know, you're sharing your misgivings or complaining to those below you only aggravates the conditions that they have to deal with. So a lot of times you have to absorb that and hang on to it and deal with it yourself. It becomes lonely and it can make you feel like you're on an island sometimes. You got to work your way through it. I mean, you just can't let it take charge because if you do, everything you do as a leader affects everybody below you. I mean, I can remember when the war first started, we were losing so a lot of soldiers and I had to bury them. I mean, I buried probably 35 or 40 soldiers in my time as a commander. And I personally went to every one of their funerals and I gave the flag to the families and it took a peace in my heart every time it was probably the most difficult thing i'd ever done but the thing i couldn't do for the soldiers that were in the field when they embraced this was to uh, embrace it with them i couldn't embrace it with them the way they wanted me to because you know you've got to keep them focused because it's a detriment to them if they fall into this pity trap because if they do that and they and they get depressed then it's going to affect every other soldier around them and the decisions that they're making. So you got to keep them focused on moving forward and doing what they're doing. Because if you don't, it could, it could be catastrophic. Mm. I mean, I remember one of my young colonels called me in the field and he just lost one of his soldiers. It was the middle of the night. He was really upset about it. And, uh, you know, he was rationalizing his mind, what the kid could have done different and how they could have run the operation different. I just told him, stop. I said, look, I said, you got to get a hold of yourself here. I said, here's the thing. I said, this is going to happen again. It's not going to be the only one. I said, this is a deadly business we're in. I said, but they have to look to you for their strength. I said, if they, if they don't see that strength in you, it's going to infect your entire organization. And they're going to be hesitant. They're going to be tentative. They're not going to be aggressive. They're not going to fight well. You've got to, you got to really understand that. And he got it and he moved on from it. But it was at one point where he was just at that low ebb where he could have just gone over the cliff and started, oh, my God, you know, she's killing me and crying in front of his guys. And they're all thinking, well, he doesn't have control. And I mean, you got to you got to deal with it. So anyway, he, he dealt with it. He dealt with it well. But as a leader, it's your job to make sure that it doesn't go over the cliff. 
that you're there to tell them, wait a minute, snap out of it. Okay, look, this is going to happen again. You got to get a handle on it right now and don't let it take you down. Now, you know, this guy was like a young son to me, but I mean, still the point is, you know, hard love sometimes is something you got to give in those conditions. That's that's the way I handle it. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I do have a question sure. regarding the age of internet and the, the idea that AI is getting more and more sentient, uh, more and more capable of acting of its own accord. We all like to think that Isaac Asimov's rules apply, but who knows? How do you see the how do you see AI shaping the future of the military? Well, I see I see the battlefield being much different than it's ever been before in history. Um, you know, a lot of things that we have out there today that I think are antiquated and, and we'll see in the next five to ten years that are just, you know, because of lethality and technology. Uh, it's going to change like tanks and aircraft carriers. I think they're obsolete. I mean, we can use them right now, but in the next four to five years, you're going to see they're big targets in the ocean that when they hit, they cost billions of dollars, use thousands, lose thousands of lives. And because of technology and the speed of technology, uh, you're going to be able to destroy them. I mean, we're already seeing the battlefield today because of loiterable munitions and the ability to penetrate tanks. You can kill tanks like you could never kill them before. So these forms of technology on the battlefield are going to have to change. I mean, I envision a battlefield of the future is uh, automated, autonomous, and extremely lethal. As an example, you know, this trench warfare that's going on in Ukraine and Russia right now where they're in these trenches fighting. Here's a trench, here's a trench, and they're shooting and maneuvering, trying to get in the trench and clear them. I think that uh, as an example, and this is all hypothetical, uh, you're going to have these little balls or bomblets. They're going to have biometrics integrated into them, have their own propulsion systems. You can drop them out of an airplane by hundreds. They'll hit the ground and they'll roll across the battlefield at 150 to 75 miles an hour. And they'll look for human human signature and they'll go kill it. Where before you had to maneuver as a soldier and get them in your sight and shoot them. And, you know, well, when that happens, they become so lethal that, you know, when do the humans get on the battlefield? Because it will change the dynamics significantly. And, you know, for me, you know, I think that's going to, it's going to change a lot for us. And because of that, things will change. I mean, significantly. You know, the real question is, is uh, how will future wars be fought? Uh, will it be AI against AI? Uh, and AI has many tentacles. I mean, it'll be in many different places. You know, how does, uh, uh, what happens information-wise if the information that is feeding AI is corrupted? And what if people, I mean, it's like the internet today, you know, people, like we said before in critical thinking, they pull an article up, they read it, and they just believe it because it's in their ideological base. Where with AI, you know, you can influence mobs and groups and people just boom like that. And it will have thought about the, the primary, secondary and tertiary effects before even the human can think about it and adjust to those automatically to create the dilemmas that, you know, could be used by an enemy that uses AI against us or us using it against them. Uh, I'm, I'm like the creators of AI. I'm very, I'm very fearful of what will come with AI if we don't have some type of I guess you would say um, ethical control over it. I see it also having, you know, great benefits for us in many areas, 
as it relates to labor. But that presents another problem. I don't know if it's called universal salary for people that, you know, you just get a salary uh, to maintain a standard of living. Well, AI will eliminate so many jobs that you have to create some type of system that allows them to have sustenance and survive. So, you know, there's there's many undetermined things that can occur because of AI and warfare and society and media and personal engagements. I mean, the thing that bothers me, too, is uh, the authenticity of what is presented in a visual fashion to people today because of the sophistication of AI and deep fake kind of videography, all that stuff. CGI, stuff like that that can, you know, really fake it is, is what people believe or don't believe. And so we've got some significant challenges. I mean. And they're coming up fast. And they're coming up fast. You know, again. I, I really have great faith in, in, in humanity, period. Uh, I believe that, you know, good, responsible people are going to do the right things. There'll be bad people to do bad things. They've been with us forever. But I, I just believe in humanity, and I believe that, uh, that we will step forward. We will figure out how to manage this and manage it properly and do the best we can with it. We're going to have, we're going to have challenges with it like anything else. It's just like life. I think about the idea of AI getting us to the point, as you said, if everything is automated, will there be, will, will people make a leap to realize that it's ridiculous? And it takes me back to the movie War Games, where the program said, strange game, the only logical way to win is just not to play. Well, you know, I'll tell you, like, like when I talk about uh, future warfare and the, and the lethality of warfare, it will be too expensive to have human life on the battlefield because it just it won't it won't be able to survive against the machines that will be out there on the systems that will be out there. Mm. So, you know, then, you know, how do we protect? How do we how do we defend? You know, how do you do that? I'm not sure. I'm, I met a guy on a plane uh, a couple of weeks ago who I hope will come on the show who's a lieutenant who's a lieutenant colonel in Space Force. Mm hmm. And I thought, oh, when we run out of people to fight on this planet, <laughs> we're going to try going outward. <laughs> well, you know, the concept, I think, actually for space, at least from Elon Musk's perspective, is uh, the continuation of humanity in the event of a cataclysmic event, or I guess you would say, uh, I'm not a life-altering event. I can't remember the term that he used, but it was a, an extinction event. I think he looks at Mars as being a great place for water rights <laughs> also. It's possible. I also believe that, you know, if there is an extinction event uh, for humanity to survive, it has to have a place to go. Sure. Have a place to be. So there's a possibility that, you know, there is some prudence to that or validity to it. I don't know. All I yeah, know and who that. knows? There could have been a cataclysmic event on Mars and the transpermia theory that we're actually descendant from those people is a fun one to think about, too. But it's going to be interesting when they get there to look at the geology to see what's there, because some of the pictures I've seen look pretty compelling that something was there. Absolutely. It could have been at one time a hospitable place. It's fascinating. You have probably... In the capacity of all the different aspects of you going along in your military life and in your home life, too. But you've been a father to thousands of people. You know, when I was again in the military, the one of the things I guess I enjoyed the most were the young people. I loved them. I mean, they were like my family. I just love these kids. I mean, 
And I look at it and really believe this with all my heart that, I mean, it's about our sons and daughters. I mean, I used to think all the time, every kid that I dealt with, I would just pray that somebody would deal with my kids the same way, regardless of whether they were in the military or if they were somewhere and, you know, they needed help, that you'd be there for them. And, and I, honestly, that's the way I looked at every kid. I mean, it didn't matter to me, race, color, creed. I didn't, I didn't care. I loved each and every one of them, just like they were my own kids. And because of that, I mean, I've got a lot of these young kids that I still see today or give me calls. And it's like being a teacher in school. You know, guys call their teacher and tell them thank you for what they've done for them. I get a lot of kids to do that to me. And I tell you, it's the greatest reward in life. But, you know, to me, it's, it's really, whether it's in the military or out here with your own personal family, it's really family. I mean, if you really look back at it, I mean, our whole nation, our whole world is a family. And if we treated it that way, you know, we'd, we'd probably be so much better off. But, you know, I just I don't understand why we're heading the way we're heading in many directions and what people are thinking and what they're trying to do. But we have complicated it more than ever. But we've created these just these hatred divisions that just to me are terrible. I, I mean, I can't stand them. You know, one of the things I see with the people that are in politics, politics really bother me. They drive me crazy when I look at them. I almost don't watch the news at all. I do a lot of reading. I read more than I do anything. I just don't watch TV that much anymore, only because it's just poisonous in many areas. I like good entertainment, like movies or things like that, but uh, I prefer to read. I mean, I love to read. I like to read old books. I mean, um, you know, one of my favorites is Carl Sandberg's edition of Abraham Lincoln, which is a five-volume set which is very rich in information that we just don't get anywhere else anymore. I mean, reading to me is everything because I love it. I mean, I probably read a book or two a week only because it just, I mean, you just can't get the, the wealth of that type of information from media. I agree with you a hundred percent. I'm a big book person myself. So well, yeah, I, so appreciate your time. This has been a really interesting conversation. Well, Susan, listen, anything you need in the future, if you need help on anything or you want to talk about anything or you need another podcast, give me a call and we'll be friends forever. I mean, I won't see you much, but you know, we're, we're friends for life. Okay. I appreciate that. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye. Please rate, review, subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye.